Welcome to Ordinarily Extraordinary Conversations with Women in STEM. I'm your host, Kathy Nelson, an electrical engineer who loves to hear and share stories of other women in STEM. I'm so excited that you're here and joining me today on the podcast, and I'm delighted to introduce today's guest. I've always held schools such as Harvard, MIT, and others in such high regard, almost like they sit on a pedestal. And in a way, I felt like they weren't attainable for me when I was thinking about going to college for whatever reason, financially or academically, whether it was real or imagined, I'm not really sure. But today's guest is an assistant professor at the Johns A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard University. She heads up the Narong Lab, which she started and bears her name. It's an interdisciplinary group that works at the vibrant intersection of computational science, condensed matter theory, quantum photonics, and quantum information science. She has won numerous grants, fellowships, and awards in her field, including Forbes 30 Under 30, and really just a ton more. She's incredibly smart, insanely driven, and accomplished. She's a marathoner and an Ironman triathlete. I guess that should probably be an Iron Woman triathlete. I'm just absolutely delighted to have Dr. Preena Rong as today's guest on the podcast. I hope you enjoy her story. Hey. Hi. How are you doing? I have had a very exciting week. Monday here is Marathon Monday. And of course, in Boston, that essentially means everyone is in town. And it's just been a lot of uh, science and, and shakeout runs with people. Okay. So I was going to ask you about running later, but since you brought this up a minute, so are you running Boston? I'm not, but, uh, a lot of my teammates are, I run with the, uh, Cracksmith Boston hairs. And I think everyone there is, uh, super excited for, for this weekend. Have you run Boston? Uh, no, I have not. That's not yet. At least. How about you? I have not. At one point in my life, I thought I could maybe qualify and I got to the point I could run a half at the pace that I needed to, to qualify. And then the marathon that I was trying to qualify at completely like fell apart. And I actually dropped out at mile 16. <laughs> the only marathon I haven't finished, which other than I guess you can't say that you ran a marathon, right? I have to take that one off my list because 16 miles does not count. So I have put that aside. Oh, and okay. So I also have to say this, cause this is the only way that I think that I could have been able to run it. So a long, long time ago before I had kids. So this is like 20, this would have been like 25 years ago. I did a whitewater rafting trip with my husband and in Idaho and you're with like a group of like 24 people that you don't know. And so one of the guys that was on my trip was a um, physician for the marathon. And so he got like free entries or something. And so he was like, well, I'll give you one of my entries. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. Cause that's the only way I'm going to probably be able to run it. <laughs> like I'm not that fast. So, um, I was pretty excited about this, and, but then I also was like, this is like some random guy that I met on this like five day trip that I will probably never hear from anyway. So he calls me and he's like, so I have your entry. And it was honestly the day that I found I was pregnant with my daughter. <laughs> so I was like, so I feel like that may have been my one chance at running Boston. And, um, I don't know. I think, I think you could do it. The times are not not that insane. I think they are for me now. I'm slow. I've gotten a lot slower. So, and, and there's more people that run. So the times have gotten faster. So I am not going to try anymore. <laughs> and quite honestly, the, the, my last marathon I did, I didn't have fun. Um, I mean, I have probably like two more marathons to do, but that's kind of like a long story. One is because my daughter wants to run a marathon. So 
I'm actually planning to do one this fall or winter, but I just am not, I'm not having fun doing long runs anymore. I'd recommend CIM. It's a very civilized marathon. It's uh, slightly downhill, not super downhill. It's flat, slightly downhill, Sacramento in December. It's always perfect weather. Hmm. And everyone uses that one to qualify or hit some PR goal that they've long had. All right. I will look at that one. So I live in Minnesota. I had a friend who ran Boston and she said training for it was really hard because there's a lot of treadmill running because winters are not great, but you guys kind of have the same issue in Boston though. Yeah. For this winter, for the first time, I made a commitment that I'm going to do all my running outside. I have a Peloton treadmill and years past I've run indoors this year. I think regardless of the weather, I have the team, the team runs outside. I'm going to run with the team outside and it, it was fine. There were a couple of icy days where I thought this is a very bad idea. This is, this is how people break their tailbone. This is how they <laughs> die. And then, you know, it just, I think doing something like that with a team is, is the only way because mm. otherwise, you know, there's no way I would get out of the house when it's like 15 Fahrenheit and somebody says, okay, let's go do the Castle Island loop where it's also windy. Not as cold as Minnesota, but Boston's cold. There's a trick I learned, you know, doing a really long run in the winter was very hard because I'd either start sweating, get, get really cold, mm -hmm. or I would never warm up enough because if I underlayered. but a trick I learned from folks here is that you could do two runs morning and evening that add up to the distance that you were planning mm -hmm. to run. Mm -hmm. For me, the thermal issues don't really hit till mile seven, eight when, you know, it's my body's like, okay, we're going to release some heat now. Uh, <laughs> and just being able to split into two runs actually made it a lot easier because doing a 16 or 20 miler when there's thermal or, or other issues was really hard. That's a trick. I want to come back a little bit later on. Cause I also want to talk about triathlons because I know you do those too, but if like, we could probably talk about this for a while. So I want to talk about <laughs> all of the, um, Awesome work that you do. I, I have to say you are probably the, you have like just absolutely incredible credentials and I am so excited to be able to talk to you and hear about what you do. So I, I loved physics. Um, I'm an electrical engineer. There's a whole lot of stuff that you do that is so beyond anything that I learned that I am so curious about and um, just am absolutely excited to talk to you about to learn more about and to be able to share the stuff that you do and hear about your journey. So you work in the space of computational science, phenomena away from equilibrium and quantum dynamics and matter. Your Narang lab, and am I saying that right? Narang lab? Narang. Narang. Narang? Yeah. Okay. Narang lab, which is your lab, which is just yep. super impressive. I want to also hear how one gets a lab at Harvard because that sounds pretty awesome. In quantum informational science spanning quantum algorithms for quantum computation, as well as quantum network science. So there's physics, which is what I learned about. What's quantum physics and what's the difference between them? Thank you for giving me this opportunity to, to describe what we do. You know, we think about interactions at the level of uh, really quantum mechanics. And that essentially means looking at phenomena on really small really, really tiny scales or really fast time scales where the quantum behavior dominates. So another way of thinking about this is that most materials at their macroscopic bulk level typically don't exhibit quantum phenomena. It's not because they don't have quantum phenomena. It's just not how we observe them. 
that's not the property we're interested in, right? So when I think about uh, wood, when I think about stone, quantum material isn't the first word that comes to mind. But there are classes of materials that either in their monolayer form or when you're looking at them at a very, very tiny scale, the quantum behavior dominates. What's even more rare is that there are some materials where that behavior persists to either room temperature, and we'll, we'll come back to this concept of temperature and, and where things are operating here in a second. But those cases are rare where you know this behavior persists to a, a maybe more macroscopic level and all the way up to, to a, a reliable uh, room temperature. So most of these phenomena are either observed at small scales, very fast times, or uh, low temperatures, and in some cases, a combination of those three. Now, we care about this because at some fundamental level, most things are dominated by quantum mechanics. And I really appreciate that you're an electrical engineer because I think there's a very nice intersection between devices that people are thinking about for electronics, for photonics, and some of these quantum phenomena. So you could think of making you know, devices that really use very, very, very low amounts of energy for switching, for example. This is a whole area people talk about, attitudes, switching, you know, how you could actually get close to the low power limit. For example, the human brain doesn't really use that much power relative to, say, a, a giant supercomputer. And I think we do some fairly complicated math in our heads. So it's interesting to, to think about how you could get to those limits. And you can't do that using typical materials, typical systems. And, and it's not because those materials aren't awesome. Silicon, of course, is, has been the, the workhorse in most of the electronics and even optoelectronics uh, community for some time. But there are other materials, newer systems, that have these interesting quantum behaviors that perhaps could be used for, uh, for applications that, that we're all interested in. At some fundamental level, we want everything to be faster, lighter, have more functionality, and ideally all of those all at once. And uh, the only way that we can, I think, access those properties is through a quantum mechanical understanding and then using some of those quantum phenomena in, in devices. Okay, I'll pause there and hear from you. Sorry, I can go on about this forever. No, this is, this is super interesting to me. Okay, so when you talk about different materials having these properties that can be, I'm gonna say like leverage for these low power. So what kind of materials are you talking about? So some of the materials we look at are uh, low dimensional materials, 2D materials. They could be 2D semiconductors, for example, made out of these transition metal dichalcogenide systems. It's a lot of words, but really there are things like MOS2, tungstenite sulfide, dihelioride. They have various phases. So they, they frequently, when you go from bulk, so many layers to a single layer, they're layered in, in the way that you would think of you know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And you can Access the properties of a monolayer, say, by exfoliating using a, a monolayer, or you could actually stack them in various ways. So going back to that peanut butter and jelly sandwich analogy, you could actually figure out, I want this kind of layer, then I want this, and then it's, it's more of a, a make your own sandwich kind of approach. And this idea really of accessing various properties using different layers, it's been around for about a decade, maybe even a little longer especially since the discovery of, of graphene and Van der Waals uh, materials. Let me take a step back here and explain what I mean by that. So these layered materials, they tend to have, and I'm using my hands to describe this, even though I know you won't <laughs> uh, have that in the, the podcast, but you know, I'll just say that you can think of it as there's a in-plane 
behavior of the material, very different from the outer plane behavior. And outer plane, there's a, a way that these materials interact called Van der Waals. And that's something that allows you then to either uh, stack these with its own type of material under it or above it or a different type of material. And that Van der Waals bonding actually is um, quite useful to, to engineer these properties. Okay. And your, so your bachelor's degree is in material science. Is that how you got interested in, I guess, maybe like the material side of quantum physics? Is that kind of like where, where it came from? You know, uh, it's interesting. So I've essentially been um, a physicist my, my whole life. Um, I know I have an undergraduate degree in material science, but that was primarily because, you know, I went and talked to um, the, the two department chairs and I said, hey, I'm trying to figure out what I should major in. And the person in material science was just more welcoming. And I said, oh, well, I want to be where... Mm-hmm. I like this person. It was a very simple mm-hmm. <laughs> decision from that standpoint. And um, so I took, you know, all the courses that I wanted ended up being primarily, you know, either physics courses or theory courses. I didn't know at the time I wanted to be a theorist. I thought, you know, theorists are like these special people and I'm going to take some theory courses because I think I enjoy them. I think I'm okay at them. And then, you know, I'm going to try to do some, uh, some, some experimental thing. And, and over time that, that changed and we can talk about that, that some more, but yeah. My interest in actually these low dimensional materials really comes from a slightly different angle, which is that as we were predicting, you know, um, some of the properties for existing systems to try and make these, these uh, uh, devices, I, I quickly realized, you know, you could take a limit, right? And you could say, how amazing can this particular system, this, this material, this molecule do, and immediately realize it'll never get there. There's no way that this system actually delivers the performance I want. And that's where I started thinking about some of these, you know, crazy materials, uh, low dimensional materials being one of them, topological materials being another. And my really focus has been to predict behavior in these in a way that it has a direct impact on, on the types of uh, devices we're trying to, uh, to, to make. It could be devices for you know, various quantum applications, and that's uh, you know, been a majority of what we've done over the past few years. It could also be for things like energy conversion and, and other applications. So the work is very fundamental, but I think some of the constraints that we see placed on existing materials can be overcome with these, uh, these approaches. You talked about um, quantum applications. What would what would those be like? So I, I know that like a lot of the work you do is in research and is probably something that like we in like mainstream world probably won't see for a while. What are the applications that these that that, you, that your research and stuff goes goes into? Because I like I'm thinking space is probably one of them because power in space is very very challenging. What are some of those applications? So some of the quantum applications that we're interested in essentially the, the three pillars of, of uh, quantum technology. So you can think of quantum sensing, quantum networks, and quantum computing, and they, they're not separated. They, they actually have a lot of crossover. So let's take the specific example of, of quantum networking, for example. Okay, those are too many examples in that sentence. Anyways, so <laughs> it's still early for me. So one of the things that people need in these quantum networks, right? These are networks where instead of using your fiber to send classical uh, photons, classical information, uh, you're, you're actually thinking of sending entanglement across the network, okay? 
Now, this is a long way of saying that this is going to be a, a pretty big complicated system. Like you said, it's not something that we you know, have accessible at the moment. I'm not getting entanglement delivered to my home, uh, at least at the moment. But one of the ways that could become possible is if you have uh, various building blocks for such a network. And a lot of those building blocks can't exactly be made out of existing systems. So one of the things we're doing is using these somewhat high-risk new material approaches to figure out materials for quantum information science, particularly quantum networks. And even more specifically than quantum networks, I'd say, when we're thinking about how these new material approaches can allow you to think about a quantum repeater, for example, can allow you to think about better uh, nonlinear components for such a network. There are reasons why both of those have been roadblocks for, for people in the past. And really, you know, get away from uh, low temperature operation which I think is the real promise of solid state systems, the kinds that, that we look at, is that you don't have to be in a dilution refrigerator necessarily. And if you're familiar with any of the work that's happening, popular culture has covered quantum computers quite extensively. You see them in these big boxes that in big metal things, those are dilution refrigerators. And it's because the temperature there needs to be really, really low, like millikelvin low. And the promise of the kinds of approaches we're looking at is that you could get away from millikelvin to perhaps a few Kelvin, which would be the difference between a dilution refrigerator and just a, a regular price stack. And that could be good. That would allow you to actually scale. That makes it much more likely that entanglement will be delivered as a service to, to my home someday. Okay, I've got a couple questions in there. So you talk about quantum networks, quantum repeaters. So is this just similar to a network that we would use for our computers, but at a, I don't know if I say smaller level, but like what, what's the difference between like a regular network and like a quantum network and yeah. I understand repeater and like a quantum repeater. What's, what's the difference between them? Lots of differences. Okay. So um, a quantum network, you're essentially establishing entanglement across your various endpoints. It's the same scale as a classical network eventually, but Right now, the, the goal is to get entanglement from point A to point B to point C, connect them, make it essentially a network. Obviously, we want more than three, three points eventually, but let's, let's just, uh, for, for now, think about it with, with those uh, three points. Delivering entanglement has uh, a few steps. I need to generate the entanglement, which means I need a good entanglement creating source. And that's quite different. We don't need to do that typically in our, our classical networks. We, we're okay with just classical photons encoding information. We need the entanglement to be delivered across the network in a manner that is optimal with high quality entanglement, right? And we're doing all of this because if I can create a quantum network like this, uh, I can connect either endpoints that have quantum devices themselves, or I can connect even classical endpoints, but then use this for secure communication. And that's one of the, the you know, big applications here. So the challenge now, if A and B and C are very far apart, is that once I start sharing entanglement, uh, at some point I hit losses in the fiber. This happens classically as well. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I hit loss in the fiber, I can't exactly amplify my signal the way I would in classical networking. It's because I don't actually have the ability to um, look at the state and then send it along. The no cloning theorem in quantum mechanics tells me I can't do that. So I need to perform some operation at a convenient point before I lose my entanglement such that I can actually 
get the signal to be transported across A, B, and C with minimal loss. And to do that, you need these things called the quantum repeater. And it's very poorly named because people think it's like a classical repeater router and, and there are some fundamental differences. The most important one being that you're not actually making a copy of your state. You're performing uh, something called an entanglement swap operation. And when you're doing that, you're avoiding any issues with the no cloning theorem, but you're accomplishing the same goal of actually being able to, to get across long distances without hitting a bound that is frequently referred to as a repeaterless bound. Uh, essentially a bound that would make quantum networks very small, metropolitan area, uh, small, if you couldn't actually, you know, boost the signal. So now you can think of it as, and to an electrical engineer, hopefully this will resonate, this is a big system level problem. And I can distill it down to constraints it puts on specific building blocks that we need in a network. And like everything else, I can say, well, there's something that I need at an absolute minimum. There are things I have that are nice to have. And then there's, this would be amazing if we could do insert X here. And right now with existing systems to make a repeater, I have something, it barely makes it, I think. It's very slow. It's not exactly scalable. So going from existing systems to something a lot better would actually take it from a minimum a requirement to, to something that actually is, is optimized. And that's what we're trying to do with some of our um, approaches. Actually, a couple of years ago, received a grant from the National Science Foundation to actually think about these third generation repeaters, to think about repeaters that actually are going to be in a scalable uh, network eventually. So that's a kind of fundamental work with applications that, that we do in my group. What is entanglement? I also know that you're the CTO of Illyrio Quantum, which talks about entanglement as a service. When you talk about entanglement, what does that mean? Entanglement is the most quantum property you could think of. It has no classical analog. And it's when I establish uh, between, say, A and B, Alice and Bob, pick your, your favorite ways of describing the two parties, via sharing entanglement across them or by entangling them, I essentially create a link between them that is uh, fundamentally non-classical. For us to think about entanglement classically, just because it doesn't have an analog, I think uh, is, is a little bit, bit hard, but you could think of it as there is now some relationship between those two that unless I measure, uh, I, I don't break, okay? So if they, they, they take their physical entanglement home, Alice takes her entanglement home, Bob, uh, takes takes uh, his, his component of this integral pair home. As long as they don't look at it, as long as they don't measure it, everything is well and good and they remain entangled. And to now think about that across a full network is a, a little, little more challenging, but you can think of entanglement essentially as just being a resource that is being shared across this network, except that it's now uh, a very quantum resource that, that you're uh, sharing using as, as the backbone for this, this network. So is it, kind of like a connection between two entities? Yes, a very specific mathematical connection between those, those two entities, but yes. And, and for the purpose of like communication or exchanging information or something like that. That's right, that's right, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like a network that we use today, but put together in a different way. Yeah, I think I, that, that's a, a nice clean way of describing it. All right. So I want to, I want to talk about how you got to where you are and you talked a little bit about this. And I think, I think it's so interesting how, um, many of us come into our career. So you talked about like 
finding somebody who felt welcoming, right? And I, I, I felt the, the very same way. So like I'm an electrical engineer with a power systems option. I'm a power systems option because we had a great professor that made things interesting. I work in telecommunications, but that was like my background from school because you find this, you know, professor or teacher or, you know, whoever it is that like inspires you or welcomes you or whatever that leads you down this path, which I think can be so random. And also for me, like I've absolutely loved my career and there's nothing that I would change about it whatsoever, even though it seems to be kind of like random how I ended up there. Mm -hmm. So you started out in material science, then you went into um, applied physics. So were you interested in quantum physics when you started going into applied physics or how did you then start going down that path of, of physics and what got you interested in that? Yeah, like I you know, mentioned earlier, I think I've been a physicist pretty much my whole life. I did the you know physics Olympiad as the middle high school kid. I was really involved in various physics communities, even, even in, in school. So I was very, very uh, engaged. And I got to college and I originally thought, okay, well, I have a year and a half to pick what I want to major in. Uh, let me think about it. I just realized that you could do physics in very different contexts. So you could do physics in a physics department. You know, physics departments have, it's, it's not just condensed matter or solid state physics, which is the genre of physics that um, I ostensibly am, am interested in, but there's also high energy. There's, you know, people doing totally uh, different and, and uh, abstract mathematical physics. And then I realized there are all these, you know, other departments that essentially do variations of, of the same thing, but very focused on connecting physics with uh, applications. And so I went and talked with someone who was very, very encouraging and said, well, why don't you try doing research in somebody's lab that's doing materials physics, somebody who's thinking about these uh, electronic properties and, and, you know, give it a shot. I was like, okay, that's fine. And I really, you know, that's where I realized, okay, I enjoy physics. This was experimental. So I originally thought I've got to be doing something very experimental, very applied. Then I applied, was accepted at uh, Caltech, and I, so Caltech is, is interesting in the sense that it's a physics department, it's an applied physics department, but there are people across both that do essentially the same thing. So it's, it's not really, it's a unique structure in, in that sense. And so within applied physics, I went and talked with folks at my visit weekends, you know, as grad students, you, you go visit and, and different faculty meet with you and say, okay, well, here's why you should work in my group. You tell them what you're interested in. It's a little bit of a matchmaking process. And there were a couple of different faculty I talked with that just resonated with me so, so much. So one of them ended up being my thesis advisor, Harry Atwater. And there were other faculty I talked with, Julia Greer, uh, Susanna Hiley at the time, now she's at Northwestern. And it was just clear to me that, you know, this is where I wanted to be. And at the time, Mind you, I was still thinking, I'm going to do some combination of experiment and theory. I found theory very intimidating. Okay? So I, I was always a good theorist in courses, but I never found theorists welcoming till I got to Caltech. So I told Harry that, you know, I'm interested. I'm interested in theory. I, I like theory, but I also like the experiment. And, and maybe we could uh, figure out how to do a little bit of both. And he was very supportive of that. And so I went and talked with a very, very senior theorist, Bill Goddard. I've never met somebody so welcoming in my life. And he said, of course, this is going to be great. You're going to be able to do amazing calculations and you're going to be able to connect them directly with experiment. This is, this is how it should be. And this idea of theory guiding experiment, 
uh, and then experiment, allowing theorists to then think about phenomena more, more quantitatively. This, this is what we were supposed to do. So, okay. So I was sold on this and I, I started working on my PhD thesis and well, PhD research originally. And it just became clear to me that the topic that I picked, the area I wanted to get into, there weren't really that many theory methods that could actually answer the questions I had. So I was thinking about how these um, light matter interactions uh, happen at, at the nanoscale, how they happen in these model layers, uh, and how we can describe the excitations these lead to plasmons and how they decay. And so originally, again, you know, thought, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll start on this and then or work my way up to how this integrates into an amazing device and all of that good stuff, maybe start even doing some, some interesting uh, quantum formation stuff with it. So, so famous last words, because turns out describing these interactions uh, mathematically and actually figuring out how to describe them, not just um, at the level of a, a model, model Hamiltonian or, or very heuristically, but actually in a way that is uh, realistic, uh, required new theoretical and computational methods. So I went and told my advisor, okay, well, I'm going to start, you know, working on this, coding it up. Let's see probably going to be a weekend or, or, or a couple of weeks worth of work. And that essentially was my whole thesis, describing quantum plasmonics, developing new methods that, that think about uh, such excitations, um, excitations both right at equilibrium, slightly away from equilibrium, and very far from equilibrium. By the time the, the end of my thesis rolled around, I had fully become a theorist. who was embedded in experimental groups somehow. And that progression was very, very natural. Everyone was very supportive of me. And I think that was quite important to me. Nobody ever said, oh, but you should really try some experiment. Everyone's like, oh, wow, you're actually good at this and uh, you should do more of it. So, okay. As I was getting close to graduation, I, again, felt very intimidated that there were all these people who knew from the time they were this high that they were going to be faculty. And uh, I didn't know that. I just thought, okay, well, I, I want to do something that's intellectually challenging um, I like emerging technologies, but, you know, I could, I could see various formats in which I could do it. A few of my mentors at Caltech encouraged me very actively to apply for, for an academic position. Yeah, I thought about it, said, okay, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I had very low expectations that, that any of this would work. And I, I got an interview at Harvard. That was very intimidating. But I talked with folks and said, okay, well, how do I prepare for it? How do I think about it? How do I think about um, my, my research, my research portfolio? You know, and, and everyone suggested, yeah, so, you know, even if you get a position, you should go do a short postdoc because that'll help you with that initial uh, ramp. And so, so that's what I did. I, I did a postdoc with um, folks at uh, MIT in, in Department of Physics with John Janopoulos and, and Marin Suliacic. Spent a little bit of time as, as a Hughes Fellow at Harvard and then started the faculty. And that was 2017. Okay, so you talk about- Long story. No, no, that's what I wanna hear. So you talk about Harvard being intimidating and quite honestly, like all of your schools that you talked about. Um, so I went to North Dakota State University to get into my electrical engineering degree. So long ways away from Caltech, MIT, and Harvard. Um, so they all sound very intimidating to me. How have you found it? How have, how have you found going into faculty at Harvard? And how was that process? Like once you, once you got there, was it as intimidating as you thought it would be? For me, a lot of times, like the expectations of things and the fears are like much worse than the reality. But what did you actually find in actuality? 
I think at all of the institutions I've, I've been at and any other institutions that I've interacted with, I've always felt like I'm not the smartest person in the room and that's fine. I think that was for me a very calming thought to say that every meeting I show up to, every uh, conversation, I don't need to come across as or even be anywhere close to the smartest person here. It's fine. It's okay for me to uh, take notes, learn, uh, have a conversation where, you know, I share my ideas and then be told, oh, that's an interesting idea, but have you thought about this? Making that transition from being a, a student who got to have some those conversations maybe every week with their uh, advisor and faculty to a point where those were my colleagues and that's how uh, pretty much every conversation was. I think it was a little bit intimidating, but also very intellectually satisfying because I felt like, wow, I'm learning so much. I'm having so much fun. I, people are asking me questions that don't have immediate answers. And that's, that's fun. If it weren't fun, I don't think it would be worth doing because it's a lot of work, mm-hmm. uh, but it's been fun. At times I've actually found it to be not great. It's when people have a preconceived notion of what is the, the right approach to do something. And then they try and, and pull the, I've been doing it for N years card. And usually that N is longer than how long I've been doing something. And that that's a little bit frustrating, but I, I think that the intellectual fulfillment from people asking hard questions has been, has been, has been good. One of the biggest challenges that I think I had to spend some time overcoming is you know, this imposter syndrome that many of us face and a lot has been written about. And I think that I'm not going to say I've overcome it and I'm, I'm there. I think it's always a work in progress, but I think um, a lot more comfortable than I was in, in grad school, for example. Relative to some of the other folks I've interacted with here and uh, previously, I just don't have that same sense of pressure in, in some ways because I didn't grow up, you know, wanting to, to do this. This path wasn't laid out for me. Mm-hmm. And that just meant that everything I do is gravy as and it's fine, uh, you know, because uh, I, I enjoy doing it, but it's, I'm not worried that, you know, there's, there's some threshold I need to hit because I was told to do that. It's both a plus and a minus, I think, to be somebody who stands out in these uh, contexts. You talk about that you didn't have these, this, this pressure to be something. And I want to come back to that in, in a bit about like, kind of like your family and influences and stuff like that. But how did you come to start the lab at Harvard? When I got my offer, I said, well, hey, I want to work in this area of theory, computation. This is what I proposed in my, my, my faculty research proposal. So typically you write about it in your application. And then there's a closed door meeting where you present that to, to the faculty and say, this is what I you know, want to do in future. And when I got here, there weren't really that many people working in, in the area of computational materials. And I said, you know, I think we're going to need a dedicated space, a bit of investment in actually setting up uh, this as, as an effort. And there was support for that. I think that people realized that theory and computation are something that, you know, you have to invest in. You all, it's what students want to learn about. It, it's also what I think the whole field of, of physics and, and chemistry are, are moving towards, very computationally driven. And that's really where we got started. 
And the first few students who joined my group, actually first few students from my group are now graduating, getting their own PhDs and their group started, which has been fun. Um, you know, they would come talk to me and say, okay, wow. So we didn't know anyone is, is doing this type of stuff here. You know, would you be uh, okay with me doing a rotation in your lab? And yeah, that's how the lab group people would come uh, discuss ideas. I would say, oh, well, that's of interest or no, that's not really up my alley. You should go talk uh, with so-and-so. Got our first few grants and that, that got the whole uh, operation going. So you also are a professor and teach classes. So where, when did you start doing that? That was that like immediately when you came into Harvard, you started teaching and how do you find teaching and research? Like, do you have one that you prefer over the other or what do you, what do you like doing? So the mission is to do both, to excel at both. That's, I think there, there's a fancier version of that statement. That's the motto, but I, I'm not going to be able to, to <laughs> uh, say that verbatim for you. So I took first semester off teaching to actually design a course. Like I said, the area I work in, nobody else is doing that here. And that also meant from a curriculum standpoint. So I put together a course called Engineering Quantum Mechanics uh, or Quantum Engineering, depending on who you ask. And, and it was really around how do we introduce undergraduate students, particularly ones who are not taking physics, uh, quantum mechanics as, as a requirement to this area of, of quantum engineering, quantum formation. And a lot of my students in that course have been people from applied math, from computer science, from electrical engineering, folks who want to take one, maybe if they enjoy that course, then a second course that introduces them to these topics in, in uh, quantum mechanics, but not necessarily a whole three semester long sequence that a typical physics curriculum would uh, require. I put together this course and first time it was really, really rough because every problem set, every idea, everything was, was new. I made it more of an experiential course. So instead of long problem sets that you work on alone, it's team-based, you work on um, computational labs rather than written derivations, which most people rarely recall. And I, having no background in pedagogy, had to go talk with the learning center and say, well, how do I think about learning objectives for this course? What are realistic learning objectives for a semester? And I, I worked with folks to develop those. So that was, that was hard. Uh, that was different from, from uh, the, the research mission that uh, we also have. And I spent a little bit of time figuring out how can we incorporate the latest advances in, in plant technology into the course. So at the time, this is again 2017, the first few quantum computers from IBM had just become available on the cloud. You could get these credits for students that could then run these calculations. And I thought that this is great. You can learn about the algorithm abstractly and then you can try these quantum computers even then, but still today are not able to run everything you wanna do, but you could try something. You see there's noise on the computer because it's not error corrected. You, you see realistic signatures and you realize, okay, noise is not some abstract thing. In fact, this is what it looks like when you have uh, a low gate fidelity and, and you can really see that. And so incorporated that into the course. And then over the years, I've iterated, tried to keep up with advances in the field while not expanding the scope because the semester still remains the same length. Some of those folks said, hey, I want to go take an advanced quantum computing course. Or some have said, hey, I want to do a master's in 
in uh, quantum formation and that's been good. And some said, okay, well, that was a great experience, but terrifying and I'm never <laughs> taking any more quantum mechanics. So that's fine too. And this whole area of quantum engineering as part of the curriculum started to take off. There are a lot of debates in the field. Is it too specialized? Uh, is, it, is it too early to say that there's going to be a, a dedicated minor major around it? Uh, should it be only at the master's and PhD level? And, and there are pros and cons, won't get into it too much, but I've had to, to learn about that over, over the years. And I wrote about it with some colleagues on what it takes to build a quantum engineering curriculum, how you could do it at the undergraduate level without over-specializing people too early. Mm-hmm. And it would be the kind of requirements people would need to take, right? Because if, if you just explode the number of math requirements or physics requirements, nobody's going to learn this because they just never get through that part, you know, with four years of, of mm-hmm. an undergraduate degree to, to take this course. But you also need some amount of, of math. So filling down, how much do you really need to know as a prerequisite coming into a course like this? That's been interesting. I think there are folks who are going even a step further and trying to figure out how to introduce high school students to ideas in quantum mechanics, especially if you buy into this idea that quantum is the next revolution. Everyone's going to be doing this then you'd say, well, then everyone ought to know something about it. Right. Interesting. So I have a 16 year old son who I just heard, I just heard him wake up. So he may start gaming soon. Cause it's, it's good Friday. <laughs> so he's off from school today. So hopefully he won't like wreck my internet connection, but he's thinking about engineering physics, what he wants to do. And, and, and the idea of like thinking about these things in high school, I think is really interesting. That thing that you brought up because from a standpoint of like a mom, you know, trying to help him figure out what he wants to do, which I also think is like really hard. Like when you're like 16, 17, 18, and he's my youngest. So I've had two daughters that have gone through this, trying to figure out like what to do when you're presented with like what to do for the rest of your life is really hard. I do like the idea though, of just having some introduction to it. So they've heard of it before, right? you know, because so they even know that it's something that they can study. Exactly. I think that's, uh, that's frequently the problem, right? The people who end up taking quantum mechanics very early on tend to be people who parents that have have taught them something in that field or said, oh, you, you know, they've been exposed to it somehow. We don't want to have a small subset of the population interested in this topic. And to get to the widest possible audience, I think that awareness, right, that this is an option. And the Mm -hmm. way I think about it, we see so much in popular culture about all the options you have in law, all the options you have in, in the entertainment or other industries, and you don't really see as much to pick about quantum engineering. <laughs> but turns out there are a lot of people uh, looking to hire in this field, and and to many people, it might be an intellectually satisfying job. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's not really why I started the podcast. But one of the things that I love doing about the podcast is educating people on what jobs are out there, right? So I was going to school to be an electrical engineer. I had no idea what an engineer did, and there's probably thirty thousand different jobs that you can have as an electrical engineer. Right. So I think just letting people, like you talked about, letting people know what's out there, what the options are, what the possibilities are, what do people actually do? Um, I also have this idea of when I retire of doing like children's books. I think getting people in STEM, especially women in STEM, because we're so underrepresented into mass media so that it's normalized is so, so, so critical to help grow people and especially women or people of color and minorities into these fields and get the diversity that we need. Like I think it's absolutely so critical. It's getting better, but it's like the things that I see are like, you know, the specialized books of 
women in STEM books and things like that. And I think it needs to just be, everybody needs to be just exposed to this and it should be just normalized that these are just jobs and we're just normal people. And this is what we do for a job. I agree with you. I think some of the mystique around it is, is making it harder to, to recruit. I think somebody just saw how you, I uh, go through our daily lives. They'd be like, Oh, wow. Okay. This, this, yeah. It's, it's normal. It's, it's, uh, it's a job as, as uh, you say. Okay. So to that point, and there's like several things I still want to talk to you about, but what does a day in your life look like? And I know like never, there's never a typical day, but what, what is a typical day in your world? So there are two genres of days, teaching days and non-teaching days. So during the semester, a teaching day typically start with me very worried about, okay, what, what is happening in, in class today, be, be organized. I try and schedule, if I'm lecturing, I try and do that earlier in the day. Because the longer I wait, more time there is for, for me to, to say, oh, I haven't prepared this or that or the other thing. And then typically I have a couple of meetings with my group members, either students or postdocs. Those meetings could be around either a research topic they've been thinking about or paper they're working on with me or something uh, that, that's coming up, like a presentation they're going to give. And there's typically uh, a meeting or two with a colleague on a grant proposal we already have, a grant proposal we want to write, something that involves science. And usually it's like, hey, let's discuss this idea. And oh, by the way, we might be able to propose it for, for this grant. Then, you know, there tends to be a, a part of the day that's devoted to some athletic endeavor. It could be running, it could be swimming, uh, it could be a bike ride, depending on the day. And depending on how close I am to a race, there could be a morning and an evening version of that. There tends to be a part of the day where I, I like to, you know, block off some time to, to work by myself and just either work on a paper or do science uh, that doesn't, doesn't involve conversing with, with someone. Yeah, I spend time with my, my dogs and, and uh, that, that tends to be a majority of the day. It's a typical day. I don't know. It's a very boring typical day. But in the spirit of saying it's perfectly normal. Okay, so let me let me. I'm going to come back to the the running and the athletic endeavor. Do you find that doing that in the middle of the day is a good way to like relieve stress or like? Because I I find like if I can go for a run at like lunchtime, it's a really great way to kind of like decompress from the morning and kind of like prepare for the afternoon. What what do you find? Yeah, that's something I I like doing midday workout. It's also just sometimes necessary because if I'm training for a race, there's only that much time in the morning or evening. So if I have an early morning commitment, then I'll say, okay, well, maybe a midday and then an evening uh, workout would be good. In science, we have a lot of visitors and stuff. So at least be before COVID used to when it's slowly coming back. So sometimes there's lunch with the visitor or mm-hmm. uh, dinner with the visitor. So I, I try and accommodate that in a way that during the semester in particular, these there are more instances of this um, during the, the summer. Of course, this is uh, a lot easier. Yeah, a lot of time goes towards grant writing, managing grants you have, reporting on the grants you have. So, so some amount of effort goes into that. If I'm thinking of an idea for a grant, I find it helpful. Okay, I'm going to go run think about it then right after rather than you know, stare at a blank page and say, okay, here we go. Here are my most brilliant ideas. I'm going to put them down in like 30 minutes. You know, that's not really how my intellectual process works. Some people are totally able to do that. They just start typing and beautiful ideas and words come out. I, I need to go 
think, run, write a little, think. It's it's a I, I'm I'm very slow. I actually do. I think some of my best thinking and processing when I'm out for a run, unless I unless I'm like listening to a podcast, which I do that sometimes just to escape from stuff. But usually, if I'm trying to think, I I have nothing on. I want to ask about how your academic life, like both as a student and as a professor, how has being female played into that? Have there been challenges that you have faced? There's not a ton of women in physics. I'm assuming also quantum physics that I'm aware of. How has your experience been, like I said, both as a student and and as a professor and faculty? I always think I'm going to be prepared for this question, and I'm never prepared for this question. But let me try and... and, um answer it as best as I can. So as a student, there weren't that many women at Caltech and it was fine. I never really noticed that as much. I think it was partly because I was a lot younger. A lot of my focus was more as an individual contributor. There were a couple of people I'd collaborate with, a couple of other students, a postdoc, and, and of course my faculty advisors, but I didn't really sample the whole population as much outside of, of uh, you know, social events. You know, I didn't really notice it as much back then as it's, uh, where I'm going with this. I noticed it a lot more as I started to go, you know, to conferences as a senior grad student, um, giving talks, and I look around the room and say, okay, well, there, I stand out. I stand out for various reasons. So, you know, I never had that expectation of blending in, but I wasn't fully prepared for how much I can stand out at a conference where as I start to get invited speaker slots that I'd be the only invited woman talking. And that really didn't register till people would say, yeah, uh, let's do an invited speaker dinner. And then you're sitting at dinner, there are 20 people and they're all guys and mm-hmm. there's me. You know, so that's when it started to sink in that there aren't really that many women and start to notice that as a postdoc even more. And finally, you know, of course, as a faculty member, I really noticed that, that there are not that many women on the, the faculty here in, in physics. And it's not just here, it's, it's true mm-hmm. across the board. So that has a couple of things that, that it immediately led to. And the, these are documented, you know, people ask women to do more committee and, and other uh, types of, of work because you don't have enough women, but well-meaning folks say, well, we need a woman on the committee. So now mm-hmm. you find the same three women on every committee. Because this is documented, there are some senior women who told me, you know, you can just say no. And I thought to myself, well, I feel really bad saying no, because then I'm further exacerbating the problem Mm -hmm. and I'm not contributing um, something that maybe is valuable. And their response was like, no, in fact, it's, it's the job of leadership to make sure there are more women so that the load is not unevenly distributed among, because ultimately, and somebody said this very bluntly and that if I spend half my time or say half of some portion of my time doing this, this type of, of service work, that is because of me being a woman. And that's time that other equivalent male colleagues are spending doing science and thereby right. being more competitive for grants and awards and such. Mm-hmm. And I too have to go and compete with them and win those awards and grants and, and be in that competitive landscape. I could, I could say, no, I don't want to play that game but realistically at this point in my career and the way U.S. academia is structured that's not really an option I if I sit out grants you know I'm I'm just harming myself right so that plus the 24-hour constraint really 
led me to, to realize that I, I just have to say no to more things than I want to say no to, and that that has to be okay. I think some of the other aspects of representation, seeing folks like yourself at conferences, et cetera, I think others have talked about, but maybe what people don't realize is that even if you make it through all of that, if you're a woman in a, a leadership position, you're actually doing more than an equivalent male in that same role sometimes. We all have to deal with the fact that only 24 hours in a day and that makes it, it challenging. Yeah, that's something. Can you can you figure that out, the 24 hours in a day? Because that would be nice. <laughs> I'm working on that. I'm working on that. That's my next project. Two different thoughts on, on this. One is like like you talked about, like as you like move into leadership as as a female, I think that you are you're tapped into in so many more ways than male counterparts are, right? So I'm thinking of this in a standpoint of I started at the company that I work at about a year and a half ago. We have like really like one woman in leadership. And so I, of course, want to like spend time talking to her, right? And so she probably does not just for me, but for a lot of other women within my company, a lot more like mentoring and having conversations and, and things like that than her male counterparts do. The other thing that I think of is like you being in faculty, in my mind, and you can tell me if this is, this is a correct understanding or not, but brings more women in just by the fact that you're there right? Because women see themselves there and say, oh, yeah, I can do this. You know, there's, there's another woman here. I can, you know, I, I have this role model to look up to. Do you find that? Do you find like more women going into your program because you're there? There is data out there that representation is important. And I, I anecdotally think it has an impact. I don't have the admission statistics um, on hand, so I don't want to say anything definitive. But yeah, I think I've noticed that there are other uh, women, women of color who, you know, will, will write me more frequently and say, hey, would you be available for a coffee? I formalized this process a little bit and said, you know, there's a, a women mentoring women program. There's a, a women postdoc mentoring program, both that I got little pots of money to, to run. I try and advise women that are thinking about entering the field, particularly Women postdocs. This is, you know, when, when people point to the academic pipeline, they frequently say, well, there are women graduate students, but the number really diminishes at the women postdoc level. And then ultimately, you know, when, when you think about uh, the, the faculty applicant pool. So I spend a little more of my time there just because I think it, it's better spent there. That's not to say that I couldn't spend a lot of time with undergraduates and girls in high school. I just working around that 24 hour constraint <laughs> and spend my time where I, I think I can have the maximum impact. And there are programs now, you know, there's this rising stars in physics program that brings in women who are really, really, you know, absolute rock stars. It's like a three-day workshop to prep you for, you know, the, the academic um, application and, and job cycle and, and some of the things that uh, people find intimidating that I found intimidating. I, mm-hmm. I'm amazed that I just bumbled my way through this whole thing. Um, but you know, I think people are realizing that, you know, if you can demystify some of these steps, then you're more likely to retain and have women enter uh, roles that, that have that, you know, step function, that, that um, big barrier. Uh, if I put my CTO hat on for a second, I think I noticed something very similar in the startup community as well, particularly deep tech startups. Mm-hmm. It's very asymmetric. You, you go talk with VCs. VCs tend to be primarily guys and guys mm-hmm. that are, at least in my anecdotal experience, over 40. 
uh, many uh, substantially older than that. And, and you know, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a different dynamic. So I think there are actually efforts out there to even diversify the, the VC community so that women who are in founder or other startup roles are better supported and, and more comfortable. Okay. So you brought up your CTO role. So I do want to ask you about that. So is it a Lero? Quantum? Yeah. A Lira. Yep. 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 Okay. So how did that come about? And you talk about 24 hours in the day. So you have research, you're a professor, you're a CTO, you're training for races and triathlons. <sighs> okay. So tell me about the CTO role and how do you manage to do all of these things in 24 hours and sleep? Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so Alero spun out of my, my lab and, you know, we'd been working on a topic that just had gained a lot of technological um, traction and it didn't make sense to continue to spin things out when you realize, okay, this is headed towards commercialization and it doesn't really make sense to do that in a university research lab context. I took on the CTO role because I, as, as a co-founder, that's, that's what I, I felt I could be most useful doing driving the technology, uh, both strategically and, and the implementation. Um, it's been really fun. I think that, you know, as the company's grown from three or four people now to nearly 25, um, I've, I've seen and, and learned a lot. Part of how I do it has been really compartmentalizing and just making sure that, you know, I allocate my, my time to things very, very specifically. And, you know, when somebody asks me to do something that just doesn't work with that allocation, um, however nicely they ask me or, or whoever they are, I just have to say that will not work with this framework. <laughs> and I think I've, I think that, that, that's been okay. But, you know, there are times when there's a deadline on all fronts and um, that, that's when I, I go back to my all-nighter roots and say, okay, there's... We're just going to have to, <laughs> this is going to be a rough week. Um, I have a very, very, very supportive partner, which really helps and adorable dogs who've helped me through, through a lot of these all-nighters as well. You know, they'll come support me and then they'll, I can hear them snoring. No. So they're very helpful. <laughs> they don't, they don't stay up with you. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, they're, they're great snoozers. I think that some of the other aspects of this that have made made a lot of sense is, you know, hiring the right people into the roles at Alero, um, building out the team in a way that I, I don't feel like I have to step in for, for things um, when, when it's not necessary. I want to talk about your awards and fellowships because you talk about imposter syndrome and I honestly am like, how did you have imposter syndrome? Okay. So I may like mispronounce some things here. Cause there's some very like interesting names on here. Okay. So you have won the Mildred Russell House Prize in 2021, the Frederick Wilhelm Bessel Research Award, the IUPAP Young Scientist Award in Computational Physics, Max Planck Sabbat Sabbatical Award, NSF Career Award, Moore Inventor Fellow, CIFAR, C-I-F-A-R, yeah. um, Azrieli Global Scholar, MIT Tech Review 35 Under 35 Innovators, World Economic Young Scientist, Forbes 30 Under 30 in Science, which, um, wow, that's like, I am so like absolutely blown away by just the, the, the stuff that you have done. Um, 
so I'm like, honestly, like seriously, like how do you have like imposter syndrome? Because obviously you're being like recognized. What are you most proud of? And and maybe it's and maybe it's not an award, but what are you most proud of that you've done so far? And um, how how has the process of you know like winning these awards and these fellowships and things been? And I'm I know I'm putting like three questions in here, so my apologies. Um, Sorry. Is is there also like a component to competition with other people in your in your space? And how is the competitive environment, especially with like the men that you work with? Receiving some of these awards has been you know, an honor, privilege, and I'll just say that some of them are grants that um, have enabled me to to take risks in my research, to do things that I wouldn't do otherwise. You know, the More Inventor Fellowship in particular, it's uh, it allows me to work on topics that wouldn't necessarily be funded by a, a federal agency, and More Foundation's really been very um, supportive of me over the, over the years. And, and I really appreciate that. I'm really excited to have received the, the Mildred Dresselhaus uh, Prize. It's named after Millie Dresselhaus, a, a hero of mine, a, a tremendous scientist. I had the privilege of, of knowing her before she uh, passed. And what I didn't realize till, till they sent me the certificate, actually, is on, on top, there's the quote from Millie. It's not, not one of her super famous ones, but it's one that's actually pertinent to the question you ask, you know, and she said, it sets, goes along the lines of, of uh, we have to do these things too and win these prizes to show that we can do it. It's very confusing quote. And I read it the first time I was like, well, yeah, of course we do. Who doesn't want to win something? Uh, but I think the, the quote was getting to something a little more profound as I, I read it and reread it that Winning some of these is, isn't just about the support it brings, which of course it does, and the, the science that it enables, which of course it does, um, but also establishing that, hey, I, I belong and, and I, I deserve some of these too. And even if I don't deserve them, at least I'm trying to you know, win some of these. So I think from, from that standpoint, it's, it's helpful. But I don't think it overcomes imposter syndrome for, for that same reason, right? Because it's... Um, it's just a rational feeling. It's, it's hard to overcome that with uh, adding to that list. But I, I'd say that it helps. It certainly has uh, established me in the fields, helps with the, the credibility. And it would not be possible without the kind of support I've received from my supervising senior colleagues and, and mentors in the fields. Um, you know, folks have gone out of their way to nominate and support me for these. And it takes a lot of time and energy to do that. So I think that. I really, really appreciate, uh, you know, mentors in, in the field. And it's something I always advise, at least the, when postdocs have, have mentored, that you should really find mentors in the field that can actually um, help with this stuff because it matters and it matters even more so if, you know, you're, um, if, if you're underrepresented in, in the field, so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have, I have friends who have been in like, um, medical research and things like that, who have told me that it's like extremely, extremely competitive for publications and, and things like that. Have you found that also in the physics space that there is a, I mean, what they would talk about was like almost this like mean spirited competition and, um, that, that really in some cases, like made them leave the areas that they were, that they were working in. Have you, have you found that or is physics not 
as cutthroat or like what, what have you found in that space? It's very competitive. And, you know, sometimes, especially when the science and technology has a commercial pull uh, with some of these quantum companies, I think it, it can get, you know, a little bit of an elbows out uh, situation. I haven't encountered anything so, you know, egregious personally that, that you know, I would say, okay, well, that's, that's really, you know, uh, over the line. But I've, I've heard other people in, in the field say that, you know, that that was, as you, know, you called it, being spurted or, or not necessary. You know, in, in terms of publications and in some of these top journals, of course, journals like Nature and Science, very competitive. People from biological, medical science, physics, all, all of science publishes in, in these, right? So, you know, I think it, it can get competitive in the review process where people will not be as supportive as they want to be because, you know, if yours is a paper that, that gets in, then then somehow you're, you're winning or something. And I don't think it's that way. You know, I, I tend to think of it as you publish a good paper. Um, it helps if it's in a great flashy journal, but good science also gets noticed elsewhere. So we publish a lot, various society journals, the physical review, uh, the ACS journals. I, I hold an editor role, uh, associate editor role in, in one of them. You know, I, I don't think that if it's, if it's not uh, accepted right away at the top, top, top uh, high impact uh, journal right away, that there's, there's some uh, issue. I, I tend to think of it as like the, the best science will, will get noticed that the cream will rise to the top and people will, once they read the paper, appreciate the work. And that's helped me keep some of that insane competitiveness out of, uh, out of at least my, my zeitgeist. I want to come back to triathlons that we kind of like, so I'm going to like kind of come back to the, like, the beginning of our conversation. So you do Ironmans, which is, I'm just going to go with damn impressive. I did 2016. I did a half Ironman, which I will never do another one of, cause I had a, actually I had a really, really great experience, but that's a half of an Ironman. How many Ironmans have you done? Which ones have you done? And do you have like any favorites? Oh gosh. Okay. So I've done a bunch of folds and, uh, I've done seven. Yeah. Seven folds, half set of lost count, a full Ironman. There's no such thing as an easy full Ironman. There's, you know, just because it's, and, and the pros will say too, and somebody very far from a pro like myself will say that too. It's, uh, it's a long day. It's a day with a lot of variability, three sports, um, three sports where the distance you're going is pretty much about the longest distance you would do in a, a, any training, right? Mm-hmm. So right, riding 112 miles, there's some people who ride a century every weekend, but you know, most people don't ride 200 miles every weekend. So, mm-hmm. you know, 112 is on the upper end of just how much time one enjoys spending on, on the bike, at least at the end of 112 miles on the bike, I want to yeah, exactly. And then, you know, a, a marathon is, is a, a good distance. So it's, it's a long day. Well, and uh, let's not forget swim. the 2.4 miles of swimming, which, um, that goes by fast. That, that is the one thing of the whole day that I think of as okay. Because you start, you know, you, you're in the, the, um, starting line shoot and they do either wave starts or some, sometimes it's a rolling start self-seated and, and, you know, the, the swims are in nice locations, nice lake. Uh, I've done actually a swim that, that was uh, a 
downriver for part of it and then upriver and I, you know, it's two loops, um, oh. Russian river. Yeah, it was fun. It was, you know, it wasn't much of a current, but I, I think mentally I told myself there's a very strong current taking you down the stream and then up, upstream there's no current. And I, it just, you know, mm. felt like there's a little psychological game there, even though I know that's not, not how it works. The lake uh, swims, I think are my personal favorite. There's minimum variability there. I haven't done a full where there's an ocean swim, which basically means I haven't had a chance to do Kona yet. Mm-hmm. I need to qualify for Kona. I, I, you know, this swim is fine. It's a lot of anxiety around open water swimming. I, I don't have a fear of open water swimming, so I don't find that part to to be too. I'm not a fast swimmer. I'm not a you know hopeless swimmer. I'm I'm solidly middle of the pack. You know, I come out and hit the the t uh, one tent just when the entire world did. So for me, the most risky part is in transition uh, right after the swim when there are a lot of people. <laughs> so uh, I, I told my triathlon coach that and they said, well, you could speed up and then you would not be in the rush. So it's like, <laughs> genius. <laughs> Why did I think right of that? that. <laughs> uh, the bike is where a lot of time is spent, a lot of alone time is spent, honestly, because, you know, they, they lay out a course in such a way, I mean, time trial style cycling. So you're at least six, uh, uh, six meters, if, if not more, you know, away from um, the, the other um, cyclists on, on both ends. They're very rigorous rules around, you know, how much time you have to pass. You can't draft. So it's, it's mm. cycling. You spend that 112 miles basically alone. Like it's not like a group ride where you're riding next to someone or in a pack and, and conversing. It's 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 a long time to to be out there with just yourself and your your thoughts. But also, I think that's one of the fun things about it. And then um, the run, the run. I think my focus for for so I'm doing two more Ironman races later this year, and my goal is. For, for the next one to just not have the run turn into such a slog. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to run the whole run mostly, um, but, and, and certainly, you know, keep that like energy going, even though by the time I'm finishing up, it's, it's, it's been a long day. So, so my next goal is to actually be able to keep the, you know, pace that I do for, for marathons minus about 20 seconds per mile for the entire run and, and have it be a little more, a little more chipper, or avoid the, avoid the total hurt locker. We'll see how that goes. So between like your accomplishments professionally, and then your like accomplishments running, doing triathlons and, and running, is there something that you feel more proud of or, or, or just like the accomplishment of both? I really like the finish line. And there is a finish line. Maybe that's like part of the difference, right? There's not really a professional finish line, right? So maybe there's that, a difference That's right. Here. And so, you know, the, the finisher shoot at an Ironman, I think feels very satisfying emotionally, physically, you know, it just feels like I've accomplished something. And they designed it that way, obviously, you know, to, to make people feel <laughs> a sense of accomplishment. It you know, feels like, oh, okay, well, you know, people are sharing lights. Uh, it, it has, it has a, a celebratory feel. I enjoy that. It's not the only reason I do triathlon. I think it's an important part of how I stay sane, manage work, life, and and um, so I, I I think there's that aspect of it. I, I don't I I don't think I could rank you know accomplishments in in a particular way. I think that would be very hard. Okay, and you have you have three dogs, right? I do. 
Um, and I know at least two are greyhounds. Is that right? Yep. There are two greyhounds and uh, a Dalmatian mutt. Do they run with you? You know, the greyhounds will do short distances. As oh, you might seriously? <laughs> yeah. I would expect them they're, to go like long distances because they're, they're the racing yeah. dogs, right? Yeah. They're sprinters though. So oh, they, I, okay. You can train them to work up to longer distances, but honestly, they're not, they're not the running dog in the sense of like a, a border collie who can go for like 20 miles and needs to go for a 20 mile run. Greyhounds are, they'll pull me and try and go like a six minute mile for like two miles. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, we're done. Like nap time. So we mm. took them on uh, a turkey trot this past uh, Thanksgiving and the older one, you know, pull, pull, pull. There's a four mile turkey trot and it's around our house. And, and one of them, super pull, I guess she needed to be dropped off at mile three. And just thankfully there was a, a way to, to do that uh, on, on this turkey trot route. And then the younger one was like, okay, I'm just going to follow, you know, people wore all these costumes and she was very interested in these various things. So there's a family of people wearing these, uh, like, you know, the, the skirt things that, People were with, with oh, yeah. uh, you know what I'm talking about. With, Tutus. There we go. That. And she just realized, you know, the goal is to follow these people. And so she <laughs> followed the, the whole family wearing these, uh, these skirts the whole, whole way. And, and she thought it was great. So we'll see. We'll see if she wants to do more of these. She, she likes running, but it's not, I don't think that, you know, not going to sign up to do a half marathon with me, let's say. Do you, um, do you run with all three ever? Cause that seems really hard. I have one and that's like one, one is plenty. And I can run with, too much. Uh, yeah. I can run with one at a time I, with the two. Um, I got this like running belts where you can attach mm, them, these mm-hmm. like bungee cords, yep. but it's very, you know, so if two dogs, they both, you know, 65 pounds take off, like they're going to yeah. take me with them. If that's yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. There's a woman on my, on my street who like when I'm out running with my dog, she has two Huskies and she has one of those belts. And I'm like, I'm terrified because I'm like, she's not holding those dogs with her, with her belt. So my last question, like, how do you recruit people to your, to your lab or women to your lab? How would, what advice would you give them? I think the biggest piece of advice has been that you belong. So have fun with it. And I think that's also been my recruiting strategy is to help people feel like they're welcome, they're included, they belong, and that my goal is to, you know, enable them to do the best science, to explore the most interesting scientific questions, and do that in a way that's, that's more supportive. So my advice is always, you know, hey, if you're coming and working with me, that's, that's what I offer. And, you know, if you're thinking about working with someone, that's something you should filter for because that will actually be the most important feature in doing uh, the, the best science that, that you could. Thank you so much for this conversation. I've had absolutely such a great time talking with you and um, this has been really fun and you've honestly like demystified a little bit of, of Harvard and, and things that have been like, I think they still hold a bit of a mystique to me, <laughs> but um, I thank you so much for the conversation and for talking with me today. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, happy Friday. See you soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Ordinarily Extraordinary Conversations with Women in STEM. You can find a list of definitions, acronyms, and a fact check in the episode notes. If you like this podcast, please like it and write a review. 
And if you'd like to have more episodes delivered right to you, please feel free to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And please join me for future episodes. Thank you.